international radio, which is a which is a thing we're doing. Actually, this is a very local show, so I'm actually not entirely sure the degree to which we should be pointing that out. But you know, it is what it is. It's a fun time, and we have uh, a interview that we were actually promised. Uh, what we we actually promised you uh, <laughs> last episode. Um, that is the interview for Vancouver Opera's La Boheme, which seems like a great show, and was recorded by our very own Margarita Galper. And Hi. I, oh, sorry, whose microphone is not on? It is now. It is now. How are you doing? Oh, great. International Radio Day. Yep. Happy International Radio Day. We we are in studio, as I said. Um, so we're going to jump to that, and then we're going to come back to Marguerite again to talk about Blood on the Dance Floor, which I was really alarmed to hear about because, you know, uh, I, I'm a bad dancer, apparently, but not that bad. Uh, but, you know, take I'll a elaborate more on the blood thing. It was actually really interesting how he presented it also in a conversation after the, the act. It is interesting because we're going to have uh, we're going to talk about the Queer Arts Festival, which is coming up uh, pretty soon. But uh, first, la vie bohème. So I'm sitting here with Renaud Dessin, the director of Vancouver Opera's La Bohème. Puccini. Can I say it's the most famous opera? Puccini's one most of famous? the most famous opera. I think Turandot, Butterfly, are also the very yeah, uh, Madame Butterfly. Exactly. Um, tell me a little bit about yourself. I just saw you for two seconds in there. About myself? Oh my yeah. God. Um, I'm originally French, then I moved to Canada 25 years ago oh, wow. and uh, I became a Canadian citizen and uh, now uh, we're living in Venice. Nice. In Italy, yes. That's fun. But now you're here directing the La Boheme. How long have you been here? Did you come just for the project? Oh, we've come here just for the project. So there's 10 days we, arri- we arrived with André Barb, who is the second costume designer. Mm-hmm. And uh, we created this production in Scotland at Scottish Opera. He did uh, a tour all over the UK. Then uh, it was played last year in uh, Switzerland. And now it's in Vancouver. So a lot of mileage already. Yeah, for sure. This is going to be the same um, the same production, the same direction? It's the same. You know, it's never the same direction because the singers are different and their personalities are different. And for me, what is important is to make sure that they come as the actors and singers forward. So uh, this is very important. But yes, it's the same production. It's the same intentions. It's the same opera so with all the all the little details so uh, yes it's a production that was quite successful how would you say your take on La Bohème is unique different you know what it's unique because we are truly doing the score mm-hmm. which is unfortunately not the case in 99.99% of the sh- of the productions uh, we're absolutely playing and I love to work with Judith the conductor uh, because we're absolutely playing every note the way it's supposed to be played and keeping exactly the rhythm with the different intentions that are in the score. And this is our absolute goal. And not to do, you know, I always say to the singers, do not mistake tradition with bad habits. Mm. There's a lot of bad habits that became tradition. Like what? Like slowing down everything. Like elongating every end of notes. Mm-hmm. Like we go back, when you go back to the recordings of Toscanini, for example, everything is much faster. Hmm. Um, living in, Ita- in Italy and speaking Italian, you know, you say things on a certain rhythm. Mm-hmm. There is no reason of speaking like this because it's opera in a foreign language. Maybe it's the perception of classical music people think it should be slower to accentuate that there's nothing to accentuate the the this is what is fantastic and in, in, in the this repertoire is that it's spoken language it's theater in music right it's a musical it is can you imagine singing mary poppins slow no super <laughs> no so why should it be you know the same thing in opera huh i hadn't thought about that then again, I don't know. I don't understand Italian, so when I see opera, I wouldn't even know. The problem is that we need to go back to the source. The source is the score, and when there is a certain tempo that is written and certain uh, uh, notes that are written, 
not I'm not speaking of uh, of tessitura, but if it's affretando, uh, ralentando, a tempo, subito, etc. Et everything is written. There is a motivation for that. What is the emotion that triggers this this note? So our it's job is to go back. Exactly. Yeah. So we need to make sure we do this. And if it's written faster, why doing it slower? Maybe because it's such a well-known opera, people have been trying maybe too much to make something new, make something different. They didn't make, make something new. Own. They didn't make something different. They did something. The, the, there was a trend at some point to make everything slower. Hmm. Okay, sorry. Some people crucify me, but with Karayan, everything started to become slower on the Italian music. Hmm. Why? It's not Wagner. So th this is something that really started to come in. But when you go back to the sources, it is the spoken language. Yeah, it is. It is just about the spoken language and the emotion. You know, I always say a good staging is a staging you don't see because everything is natural. It's in the flow. Exactly. Yeah. But it is full of hundreds of thousands of details. Mm -hmm. We stop on every note with the singer to so say, this is the little look, this is this, this is that, this is the emotion coming that creates this chord, this tessitura is coming from this emotion on everything. Yeah, I guess I just saw the tip of the iceberg just now, I was in the rehearsal and you were telling to the, to the main singer, what, what's her name? Uh, Mimi is uh, France Belmar. France Belmar. Yeah. Um, so you were telling her, you need to walk away out of the scene, you're not even, you don't even want to talk to him right now. You're yeah. just like exiting. But this is... You see, the, the difficulty is in opera, a lot of people are only making what I call caricature of characters. They're, oh, Musetta is the, the seductress. Doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. What is the person at this present instant? What does she feel at this second? Not in two pages, not in five pages. You cannot describe a character in one, in one word. It is impossible. It would mean to say that all of our lives, we are black or we are white or we are red or we are whatever. It's not true. Take we are all of go. this all the time. For sure. I also saw, yeah, well, it would take away from the character's depth. Maybe in opera people don't perceive it as a, as a medium that needs to convey the character's depth because it is more about the music for some people. But this is why I say to every singer and every conductor when I start working, and I ask them not to crucify me before the end of my sentence. I say, in opera, music does not exist. You create the music. The character's emotion creates the music. People do not react to the music. They create the music. That's inspiring. But that's what she should be on everything. Yeah, that's true. The problem is not so. Opera can be very easily be boring. And I agree to that. It can sometimes be. Yes, because it is not in direct connection with the emotion of the person on stage. I feel that. Sometimes I also feel like um, because I don't understand the language, it's hard for me to follow. And then I but you see, out. it's very interesting because when you're catched and you have the tension, you don't even need to look at the subtitles. Yeah. You don't need necessarily to know every word. Because, you because it's obvious, because the body language is speaking, because the emotion and the music is speaking. The music of Puccini is telling you everything, yeah. but we just need to convey it. That's so inspiring. I love your, your attitude of um, you know, looking deep into the, the matter of, of the piece of art and letting it flow through every aspect. Like you said, the actors, the way they move, it's all manifestations of the same source. It has to. And everything is about the set, the, all the details, whatever you do. I remember with André, we did the production of La Cenerentola at the Hamburg Staatsoper. And it is a production that is paleo-futuristic. You know, it's the year 2000 since by the year 1920s. So it's crazy. At the end, they go to the moon on a rocket <laughs> and everything. Anyway, there was a very, very uh, difficult reviewer in mm -hmm. Hamburg. Okay, and they all told me, oh, you know, you can never have a good paper with them. He hates everything. Uh -huh. And he wrote, I forgot I was at the opera and I forgot people were singing. I that, was wow. in the story. 
That's amazing. Our job is to tell a story. Yes. And to convey it and make sure that the people receive the emotion. This is our job. Our job is not... The singing is the media. Mm. The singing is like the paint for a painter. It's not because you put paint on a piece of canvas that you are a painter. But if you have technique and you use it, the goal is to create an emotion. It's not to yeah. just say, look, my beautiful drawing, I painted inside the lines. No. Nobody cares, yeah. But that's the same thing in every form of art. And opera, even more, because it has music, drama, visual arts, dance, and, and movement, the light, everything. Yes. And they all have to combine together to create an emotion. Yeah, and sometimes because it is so grand, it can come together in a messy way, in a way that sometimes as a viewer, I feel like I'm disconnecting because it kind of feels like it's going in all directions. I'm really excited to see La Boheme right now. I'm going to see it in a couple of weeks. Come? Yeah, I'm going to see it on uh, February you know, 15th. It was the, the day thing. after you start, right? Or today? Yeah. You start February 14th? February 14th, yes. Yeah. Because is, last year we did two randot. Last season we did two randot here. It was the same thing. And a very grand... This is a huge opera, a lot of chorus, a lot of things. Then you have to focus on one person. Mm. And that's our goal. So I was very happy that the, the production was so successfully received also in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And it's great to be, to be back here. And the company, I think, is really doing wonderful things. And the, the chorus is really participating to everything. All of them in our production of La Bohème have a specific character. Mm. All of them are absolutely specific people to portray. So they all have their life. And that's what makes it rich. The different textures of people. Also, I guess for you, it's so interesting to play. I mean, it can't be the same, quote unquote, but you're doing the same um, direction, but in different textures, with different people, yes. with different actors. That makes me so fascinating to see that change. The totally. human, yeah. How do you feel um, about the actors, about the singers? We have a very good cast, very strong cast. What is difficult for them, because they all have, they all sang it before. Uh, Jimmy Park with Rodolfo will do more than his 100 performance. In fact, his 100 performance of Rodolfo, wow. it will be done, you know, on the Vancouver Opera stage at the Queen Elizabeth. That's awesome. But he told me, I have the feeling I'm doing this opera for the first time. Wow, that must be so moving for you to hear that. But this is rewarding yes. to, to say, look, we're rediscovering, and he's having the time of his life. He really is super happy to be there and doing that and say, oh my God, I never saw this in this, I never saw that. 100 performance. That's amazing. It's, it, this is where, yeah, it's, it's very rewarding. And again, accentuating the fact that something doesn't become a classic for no reason. A classic becomes a classic because it has the depth, because it has the the hidden layers, the and now yes, but if you let if you let the the dust go over it, mm. okay, then you don't see the colors anymore. Then it becomes a cliche. Yes, but yes, but also look when they clean the Sixteen Chapel, everybody said, "Oh, it's too colorful. It's too this, it's too that." <laughs> no, those are the original colors. That's a great example. It's not this gray varnish. <laughs> if I, it's just dust. <laughs> That's a beautiful metaphor. Take away the dust, look at the piece. And then you have a classic that is alive. Not the classic that you think you know and you expect because it's always the same thing. Yes. I'm excited. Tell me a little bit about the, the scenery, the art. What we did for this particular production is that we set it of course in Paris, but in the flea market of Saint-Ouen today. Um, there's a very, there was a very strong element in Bohème, is the fact that Mimi is sick from the beginning. And, you know, I always have a problem when I hear Bohème is a romantic opera. It's also about death. Yes. And it's about sickness, but it is about caring for each other. Mm -hmm. Something that unfortunately becomes more and more rare you know, to care for each other. And um, so, in fact, it is this woman who is dying, dying of cancer, mm. who is projecting herself into the story. 
What are you projecting? Because she's imagining herself inside the story. Hmm. Come, you will discover okay. what it is. And then she enters the story. The story that, in fact, she will never have. The love that she can never have. The kids that she will never have. And maybe the feeling that she will never feel. And this is where the art is extremely important. How so? Because we are there to be able to share those feelings with people sometimes who do not have the possibility to either have them or express them. We are there to help people live. Do you mean me? No, I mean the audience. Now I understand. I think I understand. We, we're vicariously experiencing Mimi's last... Of course. We all see, you know, we will... All of us, okay, will know or know or have known somebody who will have cancer. Yeah. It's a fact. Yeah. In our modern day, this is something that we cannot escape. It is an experience for everybody. Yeah, unfortunately so. But, and we have to experience this. Yes. The difficulty is how do we go through the process? Yeah, how we confront it or accept it. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, at some point we have no choice to accept it mm -hmm. because anyway, we're all going to the same, to the same <laughs> place. So you know, just like whatever we can do, whatever we, we're all going to the same hole. Yeah. So the goal is how do we spend the time here? Also, what kind of relationship do you develop with the concept of this? Yes. Yeah. So, for you, how does the how does having it in modern day flea market? The, it's only the beginning. It's only the beginning. It's also, you know, I'm telling you, we are we live in Venice. Um, in our apartment, uh, we're coming Pablo Picasso, Ernest Hemingway, Arthur Rubinstein, among many others. Mm. Okay. Modigliani. Wow. So each time I sit at my dining room table, those people were sitting there. That's amazing. That's just mind blowing. If I look at the mirror, mm. they were all there. They were looking at the same mirror, looking at their reflection. Each time when you have an old piece of furniture, it's not just a piece of wood. It's all the people who touched it, who live with it. I really personally, I think that there is there's a vibration, there's a soul in things. There is something that is telling us, especially on the antique things. Yeah. When it went to different houses and things, you can really feel it. Yep. So is this, so when you touch the walls, when you touch a piece of furniture, it's not just a piece of nicely uncrafted uh, uh, material. It's, it's everything that goes with it. It's the context, it's the, the yeah. period, it's the... And this is what I think links us to the past and at the same time brings us to the future. I think so too. I think living inside this kind of context where you even put your consciousness on this fact that you are surrounded by this history, art, inspiration, it inspires you. Totally. Yeah. But you need to be open to this. You need to open yourself. It's only if you put your, your awareness on it. Yes. If you choose to be, uh, to be oblivious, then it's just nice things. But sure. that's the same for everything. Yes. Well, things only exist if we're, if we're conscious of them, for sure. Totally. Okay. You said you came in with the costume designer? Is yes. that right? Yes, André Bar. Yes. And is it the same costumes for all the, like the costumes go along with you? Yes, the costume come also with us, you know, because in the production you will see there is for the chorus, there is uh, Picasso, Olga Koklova, Stravinsky, Hemingway, his wife, Pauline, uh, there is uh, Peggy Guggenheim, Serge Diaghilev, uh, Anna Pavlova. <laughs> all of the people who were making the 20s in Paris a fantastic place. I can't wait to see it. And I really want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me. You're most um, welcome. And we're back. That was Renaud Doucet from Vancouver Opera talking about La Bohème. And I, I won't sing this time. <laughs> La Bohème! Oh, wait, he did. Just <laughs> want to mention to everybody that... Classic baritone trick. 
Yeah, well. That uh, was very well executed. And also, there is a 40 under 40 thing. Yes, that's right. Opera. So if you're under 40, which I assume everybody was listening. Well, I shouldn't assume everybody. If you're listening (laughs) to this and you are under 40, you can get a ticket to Vancouver Opera's La Boheme for $40. Mm -hmm. And you can do that on February 14th, which is tomorrow, on the 19th, and on the 21st. So you should do that because I, I mean, think La Bohème is going to be really cool. I mean, a uh, romantic night, you know, Valentine's Day. Exactly. Go watch an opera. She's getting the drink. <laughs> I will say that the ending of, of La Bohème may cast some doubt on that. But then, look, 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 then you're kind of sad, right? And then you go out and then you go to eat like pizza or something. And then you get happy again because you ate and you... Yeah. Is this all a commercial for <laughs> <laughs> Good idea. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> you know what else is a good idea that you can also get for free? Well, <laughs> hypothetically for free, is the Chan Center's February 24th show, No Blue Memories, which is a tribute to the late poet Gwendolyn Brooks. Gwendolyn Brooks, the first black Pulitzer Prize winner. Hmm. Um, in honor of Black History Month, we are doing a ticket giveaway uh, for this show. This show features Shadow Puppets, a live six-piece band, and an original score. Uh, sounds very interesting. Uh, and uh, so to do that, to, uh, to, ah, this moment, to, <laughs> you can do it, you can do it. <laughs> to, do, to do the words, uh, uh, you may call in to the show uh, as of right now, we are notoriously phone-phobic, but this is a worthy cause. Uh, the on-air line for CITR is 604-822-2487. That is 604 604-822-2487. 604-822-2487. 604-822-2487. 604-822-2487. Yeah. I got it. Um, to simply claim your tickets, uh, and we will... Um, we will be taking a quick PSA break right now to give you time to do that. When we come back, we're going to talk about some interesting things, including the Museum of Anthropology, uh, which recently had their uh, sound house evening, which I'm told uh, had some lovely tunes, one of which you may hear later. So, uh, And also Blood on the Dance Floor. And also Blood on the Dance Floor. That's and right. And True Crime. And True Crime, which are not connected. <laughs> that you know of anyway. Carry on. Hey, bro, I was kind of thinking that I might want to write, like, stuff for a magazine, dude. You know you can do that at CITR and Discorder, right? What? Yeah, you can review live shows where you get in for free, or music and books and stuff that's coming out, or do write-ups on artists and local issues for Discorder magazine. That's sick, bro. Yeah, just email volunteer at citr.ca and they can help you get started or just come into the station whenever. Dude, I totally will. Discorder, that free magazine from CITR, has been documenting the best in music, arts, and culture since 1983. Let's see what one man of prestige has to say about Discorder. What up, though? This is Big Snoop Dogg, and I fucks with Discorder magazine. How about that? <laughs> Smoke every day. Pick up a copy around Vancouver or f*** with Discorder online at discorder.ca. That's right. Uh, there's a song called, uh, there's, well, uh, per- firstly, there's a movie called Blast Off Girls. It's a Herschel Gordon Lewis movie. I really want to get a clip of the song in it because the, it's a movie about a band nobody's ever heard of. If you see the movie, you'll know why. And uh, <laughs> they actually do curious. have one very catchy song, which is the plot of the movie is their manager is a scumbag who's basically a pimp. And they grow to hate him, and they actually manage to create a song that is incredibly catchy called Go Burnt Yourself, My Friend. Go Burnt Yourself, My Friend. It's, it gets stuck in your head, and it's really weird. So, blood on the dance floor. Indeed. Okay, so this was a solo performance. Um, <laughs> I'm going to tell a little bit about it while I get the actual dry details. Certainly. The- the performer was, the dancer was amazing. It started, let me just tell you a quick story about how it started for me. I was running a little bit late, like coming in with, like without a breath, and 
welcoming me is a drag queen and like putting his hand like kind of on me and saying it's all good doll you're here now relax breathe in <laughs> breathe out we're not gonna start without you and it's like super fabulous and i'm like wow what a great way to welcome somebody so that was the performing he was he had really amazing uh stage presence some beautiful amazing dancing um i haven't been to many contemporary dancing um shows but in my opinion really amazing super advanced and special and the thing about the show like the topics that he was dealing with are kind of like gay community and pause what does pause mean they spell it p-o-z hiv positive community Mm. so he was trying to address that in different ways through the dancing through multimedia clips um of kind of like intimate shots of him in the background incorporated with the dancing did they address why what's called blood on the dance floor he did address that in some parts and also there was a conversation at the end of the show where he was talking about um that the idea of blood stems from a few directions first of all his family is quote-unquote black he's australian indigenous and over there a person is called black if he's from an indigenous family it has nothing to do with skin color because this guy is totally white color wise mm-hmm. then he was dealing with blood from that aspect and of course from the aspect of hiv mm-hmm. he said that um when he goes to take his blood uh regularly to check for you know the stats he asked the the nurse to take a little bit more went to a thrift store got like a crystal vial and put the blood in that in that vessel on his desk as his muse for this piece while he was writing it cool and he's hiv positive he's hiv positive it's really interesting to think about that in light of some of the other features that are on because there's um, the Cinematheque is doing a retrospective on Derek Jarman, uh, who, for those who aren't aware, Derek Jarman was a filmmaker, he's a British filmmaker who made what has been called Britain's only decent punk film. Because, <laughs> because that's Jubilee, uh, which is about Queen Elizabeth I meeting punks. Uh, you can find it online. Uh, I really like Jubilee. I really like Derek Jarman in general. He's an extremely artsy fella. He, uh, he died of AIDS-related complications. Mm. Um... And tonight, actually, at 7.30 p.m., you will, you can actually, if you hustle on down to Cinematech, there's his picture, there's his film Blue, plus uh, Glitterbug, which is an assemblage of some of his posthumous work from Super 8 films. Um, and the thing about Derek Jarman that I think is really interesting, especially considering this, is because um, Jarman's films really do deal with a very queer sense of sexuality, not just in light of Jarman's homosexuality, because he was gay, and his first film was about the martyrdom of St. Sebastian, which is probably one of the, actually probably one of the many points, come to think of it, where Catholic imagery overlaps with uh, extreme homoeroticism. Yukio Mishima was also fascinated with it, hmm. which would be an interesting way to look at it here. And when we think about this, especially something like Blue, which is bizarre, because that, that film is only the color blue. It's basically... Uh, kind of a radio show. There's some interesting audio to it. And it's interesting to think about that in light of the fact that this piece seems like it celebrates a definite sense of community. And it's really weird to think about that in light of Derek Jarman because I don't think he ever found a sense of community. I think the gay community formed around him to a degree. He was definitely there when that happened, when it became legal. And he was, his friends were punks. He wasn't one. And it's really interesting to see how his films reflect that. Interesting. Now, apropos of queer uh, storytelling, however, uh, this is probably not the best light to cast that in. But actually, you know what? Let's talk about, yeah, so we'll talk about Soundhouse later. Let's talk about Tom Ripley. So, yeah. um, So for those of you who don't know or have never read the book, I actually was introduced to this book um, last year. But... The what's it called again? I always forget. The Talented Mr. Ripley. The Talented Mr. Ripley Hmm. is a novel about this man who doesn't really have his own identity. And his talent is that he can kind of transform into anyone. And he he is a great con man. And he kind of kills a few people. Um, (laughs) But the thing is, a lot of the critique, not a lot of the critique, because there is critique, but there's also not critique about this book. There's some mixed feelings and some points. 
is that um, people, um, some people interpret his obsession with becoming um, one of his friends, quote unquote, yeah, uh, as uh, his passion for him. And um, many people say that oh, Tom Ripley is the another trope of the game, the gay um, predatory gay man. Exactly, but. Honestly, I think they're wrong. I wrote actually an entire <laughs> essay on this about how Tom Ripley um, is not gay. He, his desire stems from other things, um, not necessarily sexual. Oh. But all this comes, the, all this we're all just talking about is because of True Crime, which is a play that's going on right now. At the Arts Club. Gold Corp stage. And By a fellow named Torquil Campbell. That's his, that's his neural name. That's, yeah. uh, <laughs> I, that he, that he makes light of that. This is a one-man, well, there's a two-man show because there's a guitarist. There's some really fantastic singing in this. I will say that right off the bat. Okay, this, oh my god. Every time he opened his mouth to sing and not talk, I was just melting because his voice sounded like honey. Like, it's just so soft and so, I don't know. I just loved his voice. <laughs> this play deals with a fellow named Clark Rockefeller, who may be real. And may- <laughs> yeah, that's I, I, let's not spoil the the ending of that because this the ending this of this is, is uh, a big deal is quite tricky. Uh, this fellow named Clark Rockefeller is a well, actually one not named Clark Rockefeller. So Clark Rockefeller is a con man, and that's where Ch- Tom Ripley kind of comes in, and that's. Um, some of the references that even the what do you call this? This the, is the program. The program uh, does emphasize that he is a con man and he takes on these identities and he becomes whoever the people that are around him want him to be. Mm. So there's not really a real um, Rockefeller, and it's the mixing of the story of Torquil and. In his t- attempt to discover Rockefeller's story. Yes. And it's running from now until February 24th. So that's next week. The thing mm. that I want to touch on without giving too much away about this, because yeah, there it's, isn't, it's, it's hard to talk about it that way a little bit, because one thing that this is about is about the storytelling process. And Patricia Highsmith, the woman who wrote the Tom Ripley story, she also wrote Strangers on a Train, uh, for those who are Hitchcock fans. And her style really lends itself to that better than um, um, what was it Daphne du Maurier better than Daphne du Maurier in my opinion lends herself to Hitchcock's filmmaking because there's a huge psychological tautness in it. And this is a thought I had afterwards after this show because evil exists in Brett Easton Ellis, the guy who wrote American Psycho. American Psycho is an incredibly depraved book about someone who also has no identity, except Patrick Bateman is indisputably evil, and Brett Easton Ellis knows that. And if you're Paul Bernardo and you don't realize that, then, well, you're probably like him too. And that's the real litmus test of American Psycho. And that's also of Ellis's other books too, to a degree. But American Psycho is the most famous example. For Tom Ripley, evil doesn't exist in Tom Ripley's universe. Yeah, he does things because he wants things. And he will, he's very, um, what's the word? Detached. No, 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 no. no. Like um, Machiavelli. Machiavellian. Yes. He's very much like that because he doesn't really necessarily see things as bad or good. It's kind of like there are things in my way and I don't want things to be in my way anymore. And so he will get rid of them. And the talented Mr. Ripley, the title of the book, he said there are three talents Tom Ripley has. Forgery, lying, and impersonation. And that's also kind of the uh, Clark Rockefeller's mm-hmm. talents. And um, I went into this this play thinking that I was going to hear this amazing story about this uh, ridiculous con man that got away with so much stuff. And then I ended up being pulled into Torquil's story about how he came across Clark and how he came across with like how did he end up writing this play in the first place and it became so much more interesting and is so much more involved in it 
it's very unexpected i feel everything about this play is very unexpected uh there was nothing that i could really predict at any point that i was like wow yeah i got that totally right everything yeah. that i thought was broken down at some point and this is a one-man show he's embodying a lot of different people he does a lot of accent work he does a lot of very dynamic stuff with his body and with his face especially the thing that i find interesting is that by inserting himself into this he plays the person i thought this was going to be the upshot of the play and that's where the ending comes in but he plays a person who appears in every single one of the ripley books there's five and not to spoil them usually ends up dead and that's a person who tries to understand who tom ripley is and that's a question patricia highsmith actually never really answered like one thing patricia highsmith was asked is is tom ripley a homosexual and she said no probably not and like you said that the issue of Tom Ripley's sexuality is kind of bizarrely irrelevant. He doesn't really have a sexual urge, at least compared to his desire for security and comfort. And for the the best of everything, as the line repeated, even the really dumb, missing the point version with Alain Delon got that one right. The for By the way, uh, I the movie The Talented Mr. Ripley with Matt Damon diverges from the book in really interesting ways because it makes Ripley's story a tragedy, where it also in the books it's a story of paranoia. It's not only a story of paranoia, but it's also, they also make it, um, they make him eye candy at a lot of times. And he make, they make him more heterosexual, like he make, not more heterosexual because there's the. They make him less heterosexual. Yeah, yeah, because I was like, no, 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 not like that. But in like, he's definitely eye candy because in the books, there are a lot of beach scenes because they are in Mm -hmm. Italy, right? Yeah, and Tom's really, he's gymnophobic. Yeah, he's he's very skinny and awkward and he's wearing like these weird clothing because this was the only thing he could find. He traveled without a suitcase or anything. And in the movie, they make him kind of like this proper man with like put him in a yellow speedo yeah (laughs) lime green speedo and he is kind of bashful about that but he's also matt damon yeah so it's like i don't know they got they but definitely got it a lot better than plan soleil um the french version version which makes it which makes ripley um explicitly straight is too explicitly straight to the point where he steals someone else's girlfriend well, it's because one thing is, I, I will say this, Alain Delon can't act. He hasn't been able, he never could. But he's pretty. He he was very pretty. <laughs> and, he, and that's sort of where that comes into it. The thing about true crime, insofar as it relates to the storytelling of, uh, of Patricia Highsmith, is that Patricia Highsmith didn't write true crime books. But she was a good enough writer, and Torkel Campbell touches on this, that Patricia Highsmith got into these, he calls them wonderfully twisted stories. And the thing is, Patricia Highsmith was a person who really did know how to write people who get themselves into these disturbed situations. The thing about Tom Ripley and the Matt Damon movie gets this dead right is that he's just abjectly creepy most of the time. He is like, he's not super smooth sometimes. He just screws up and you see the mask slip because he legitimately doesn't know. Like there's one point in the movie where he's sitting next to Dickie, the guy who he will eventually kill and try to become in the bath. And he's like, hey, the water's really warm. Can I get in? And he's not joking. It's and a really – he says it really awkward. softly and offhandedly. <laughs> and it's a moment where you're like, oh, okay, he really – like it's it's a thing. He's playing a, a human being all the time. But occasionally, occasionally, the rules he's learned by rote kind of slip. And that's where, again, you get this desperation and abject creepiness. And when Torkel Campbell talks about it, I think that's best summed up in one line where he goes, I realize – that hanging out with Clark, spending time with Clark, is a lot like doing drugs. And I like doing drugs. <laughs> and It's but, addictive, you know? Like, it, you wa- like these people that don't really have, that you don't really know, you want to understand them. That's kind of like the human essence to try to understand other people. That's part of our compassion, our empathy. That's what makes us sociable beings. And when you, we can't understand them, we want to stay around them longer to be able to do that and that's kind of the feeling i got leaving the play was mm-hmm. that, that i was like no wait stop i haven't heard enough like tell me more please tell me more because i just felt that i i wanted to be around torquil and his version of um rockefeller for longer it's kind of funny too that there are a lot of really funny moments in this where they sort of they do 
kind of snark at he snarks at himself a lot through Clark. One line I really enjoyed was, "Do you know Torquil? When a writer says that he has a job, the whole world laughs behind his back." <laughs> and he's funded by the Ontario Arts Council at this point. <laughs> in that's a, that's a he, he gets a joke that he did get a grant from the Ontario Arts Council to go interview a man who's probably a, probably a murderer. So. There are, there are moments like that. This is a really good show. Like, it is an engrossing show. It is deeply entertaining. It's not depressing, and it is very interesting. So I would I would highly recommend seeing it. And there are so many twists mm-hmm. that if More you... More twists than a pretzel factory. <laughs> yeah, if you can figure it out and actually be like before the ending, be like, yeah, that's exactly what happened, and you get it right, like, please... Let me know, because honestly, like, I will be so impressed. It would just be embarrassing if we didn't get it. <laughs> uh, tickets are on sale until February 24th, so check it out. That's at the BMO Theater Center, this Gold Corp stage. It's a snappy-looking place. Now, uh, we're going to talk about Moa's Soundhouse after the break, but we're actually going to hear Moa's Soundhouse a bit. Uh, this is... Well, we're going to hear a couple of PSAs, and then you're going to hear Salsa Disco by Kutapira, which performed recently at Moa's Soundhouse, and we'll have Silvana on to talk about that. Uh, enjoy the, uh, well, first enjoy the PSAs, because, you know, we're not alone in this. Fun drive's coming up, people. Have you ever thought about going abroad to study, work, intern, or learn a language? Mark Thursday, February 28th your calendar, and get down to the Vancouver Convention Center, East Building, to find out how. All the experts under one roof, top universities, gap year specialists, and student travel organizations. There's a feature seminar on scholarships that starts at 1 p.m. and the expo opens at 2 p.m. Admission is free. Check it out online at www.studyandgoabroad.com for more info. Oh, 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 
I did not know dragon fruit looked like that. We're now looking at the Ubisoft because uh, they have an eye-catching cover. <laughs> I do want to say the Ubisoft sex issue is trying to one-up itself. I do appreciate that because that's pre- that's you could also say that about internet culture in general. What you ju- the people who you just heard were Kutapira. That is a local Afro-Cuban jazz outfit, and I really wonder how much groove they had for breakfast because that was a swell track. Yeah, they really they were amazing. Like Soundhouse. And Kutapira, and of course Camara 67, which was the other band that was performing. They were also really, really good. Now, what was Soundhouse? Mm, okay, so Soundhouse is this new idea that's going to happen in MOA, it, especially this term. They've announced uh, four dates, so this was the first one. The next one is going to be March 7th, uh, and it's actually going to be themed around International Women's Day. Ah. So This is like Night Shift then, a little bit. Mm, yeah, it's like it's gonna be different from this first issue. Um, this one was definitely more like the venue was smaller. It was done in Hyde House, so behind like the like main like museum building. Yeah. Um, and it was this like all wooden like house. Um, in the like in the outside, so of course it gets cold. But there was a there was a bonfire outside, and people go co- go cozy, and then like inside when the bands were playing like people were standing up people were dancing i danced a lot honestly like i really had to like take off my my like scarf my jacket it was really really good like the vibes were great this is when you danced a partner too right i'm assuming or is it just a lot of people dancing on their own <laughs> i mean this it, is salsa like that's yeah well there were there were they played different types of music mm-hmm. of course this one like has to do with a lot of like salsa this is like more their latin side i guess but there's they also have like the more the more like african side uh, especially west africa like the marimbas that you hear there like they are common like in latin america as well but they're originally from africa and specifically uh, specifically those ones are from uh, zimbabwe actually kutapira like their name like they mentioned that means sweetness in the Shona language of Zimbabwe. It's kind of interesting because we had Nasty Weather playing out there. She's playing on the banjo and mm-hmm. she got interviewed by Miles and the banjo is also an African instrument. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that about the banjo. It originally was because it, it's it's a drum and you put strings mm-hmm. on it because it was and it was brought over by slaves mm-hmm. to the to America and then sometime it ended up in the hands of the kid from Deliverance. <laughs> and then that is all everyone knows about banjos. Wow. See, that's the interesting thing, because marimbas are something you hear in a lot of, like, you hear them in Bossa Nova a lot, I'd imagine, a lot of Latin music. But for me, that frame of reference is the douchebag DJ in Glitter, who's the love int- Mariah Carey's love interest, plays the marimbas and ends up in bed with Mariah Carey. So, like, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I guess... It's an interesting instrument. It's a percussion instrument, so mm-hmm. i got to say, you know, that does, I guess... Yeah, lend credence to the the drummer stereotype, you know. Yeah, definitely. Like, you saw like all their movements. Like people, like I can assume that they like sweat what when they practice because it's well, you heard it. Like it's super fast paced most of the time, and it's also like a lot of energy. Plus, playing the marimbas, it's kind of like it's really hard if you're especially if you're playing with more than one like stick in your each hand to like make two two notes sound at the same time like more than two notes sound at the same time it's basically a big set of vibes isn't it it's a it, they had three marimas i can imagine that's the same principle uh like i i used to because i was when i was in cadets they asked me i because at the time i didn't play any i technically knew how to play piano they're like mm-hmm. can you play xylophone i'm like yeah sure well we have vibes i'm like okay i said xylophone no that's the vibes i'm confused because confused I had the same level of situational awareness then. So, yeah, I wasn't very good. These guys were. So definitely check them out. That album, by the way, is called, um, uh, and because of autoplay, we're on a Tori Imoi video. Uh, That album is called All Aboard. Um, uh, That album is called All Aboard. It's got a great cover. Um, so we got to actually head out because we've got the medicine show coming in, another music show. Uh, this has been the Arts Report on CITR 11.9 FM. I'm your host, Jake Clark. <laughs> and I'm Silvana. I'm Lua. And we'll see you soon. Cheers.
Auto DJ. Play me out, Johnny.